20, 2020. This is the All-American Podcast, and I'm your host, Paul Seawright. Today, we have a very special guest with us, Mr. John Correa of Active Self-Protection. He hosts a website and a YouTube channel and a business that teaches people self-defense. John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's always uh, just a great time to be able to talk with people about important stuff. So thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your business and what you do? Yeah, Active Self Protection is the name of the company and I'm the founder and owner. Uh, Active Self Protection exists to train people in all walks of life to protect themselves and their loved ones from criminal violence. And uh, we've been in business since 2011. Uh, If you know me, you know me probably from our main YouTube channel, which creatively is named Active Self-Protection. And uh, people send me real-life surveillance videos of armed robberies, carjackings, muggings, stabbings, home invasions, uh, defensive incidents of all kinds, and I do after-action reports on them. So what I do is I walk through an incident that happened to a real person that was caught on surveillance video. Uh, We also do some badge cams and dash cams as well. Mostly surveillance video though. And we walk through it, see what happened. Then we walk back through it and uh, pause at key moments for lessons learned. And we learn the principles of real life self-defense from that. And then I encourage people to train. I actually have a second channel, Active Self-Protection Extra, where we do seven days a week. We post for training uh, in all kinds of things, handgun skills, legal and moral self-defense, gear reviews, those kinds of things. Um, And then I also teach in-person classes. We teach uh, primarily handguns, but we teach uh, defensive carbine, defensive shotgun, uh, empty-handed skills, church safety. I was a pastor for 14 years, so church safety is a big deal to me. Um, And so we we kind of run the gamut. It's uh, gone from just a little side hobby of mine to a full-time endeavor with 10 employees. Well, I can see it keeps you very busy because you have a lot of views online and you have a lot of followers on YouTube. And you have some really incredible videos. And I always go to your site probably at least once a week to learn some tips from you. And I find them very instructive. And before we get into some of your videos, I'm curious, what type of background do you have in uh, using firearms? Well, I grew up um, hunting and just a little bit with my grandpa, but not all that much. And we had guns around, even though it was California, you know, uh, in the 80s and 90s, that was still okay. So uh, then I joined the military. So I get this all the time. People say, you know, why are you qualified to do this? Were you ever a cop or ever in the military? And then I go, yeah, I was in the military for eight years. And that usually mollifies people to go, oh, okay, cool. Well, he was in the military, so he's qualified. And then, of course, I have to say, keep asking questions for gracious sakes, because I served in the United States Navy as a nuclear reactor operator. I made hot water the hard way in Uncle Sam's Canoe Club. So that so certainly didn't qualify. You weren't me. shooting that much while you were in the Navy. Ever. Ever. <laughs> I fired 15 rounds from a, uh, an AR-15 converted to 22 long rifle in boot camp. And that is literally the only shooting I did in my entire military career. So, uh, and that's the vast majority. I even tell folks, you know, I got friends that have served in every branch. Uh, but in the U.S. Army, to, in order to uh, actually, if you've been in combat, you earn a combat infantryman badge. And less than 1% of soldiers in the Army earn a CIB. In the Marine Corps, they call it a combat action ribbon if you've actually faced hostile fire. And uh, again, about 1% of Marines earn a car. And so you go, wow, even in those professions where they, you know, kind of kick in doors and shoot people in the face for a living, not that many of them. Uh, use firearms and they use them differently than we do in the civilian world. So I got out of the Navy in 02, started practicing in 
Uh, in 06, I got into self-defense because I was running a video game store while I was going to graduate school. And um, managers were getting mugged when the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3 came out. Um, and I just wasn't going to be one of them. I just decided, now nah, that's not how it's going to go. I live in Arizona. And so I got my CCW here in Arizona and started carrying a firearm. About the same time, my son, who's now grown and, and married on his own, and he uh, asked me to start taking karate with him, martial arts. And so I thought I'd do that for about six months just to mollify him. And uh, turns out 14 years later, here I am still doing it. So 2011, I started the company because it's expensive to start training. I started training myself and going, you know, man, uh, if I'm going to carry this firearm, I should be good with it. And uh, that process got uh, expensive. And so I thought, man, I can find a way to write this off if I will just maybe teach some classes. And so that is how, what I ended up doing. So started the company in 2011, started any social media presence really for it in 2013 with Facebook, uh, and then started the YouTube channel. Uh, officially, the YouTube channel says it started in April of 2013, but I really didn't put anything on there until April of 2016. And so in the last four years, uh, we've uploaded 365 days a year to the main YouTube channel. So you know, multiply four by 365 and you'll see that we've got about 1500 videos on the YouTube channel um, and another 500 or so on the Facebook page from before that. So it's a labor of love and the company has grown significantly. And yeah, so that's where I come from. In, in terms of background uh, and qualifications in the firearms world, uh, I am uh, about as qualified as you're gonna get in that arena. I'm a range master, master firearms instructor, which means I'm in through all their stuff as well as a shotgun instructor. I'm a six hour academy, um, semi-auto pistol instructor. I've graduated from shootingperformance.com, uh, firearms instructor development. I'm an NRA certified instructor in all their disciplines. Um, I uh, am a Force Science Institute certified Force Science Analyst. In fact, I'm the first non-sworn, non-police officer to go through that in quite some time. Took Dr. Lewinsky a long while to uh, allow me to get into that class. A few more have now, these kind of cracked the door open. And that's a very good thing. That's an excellent uh, qualification. I am uh, certified by a couple of different organizations as a, um, an analyst in the defensive use of force. So legal and moral self-defense analysis. So uh, I'm certified there. I can do expert uh, witness work in those arenas. And I have a second degree black belt in a derivative of Kenpo known as UMAS. That is my teaching credentials for empty handed skills. That's fantastic because you do know the need those empty handed skills in addition to your firearm skills. A hundred percent. Yes. If you're ever disarmed, you have to be able to fight back somehow, correct? That's right. I mean, it's not just about the firearm. We say all the time, I'm the weapon and I use tools. So I'm a tool user hundred percent, but uh, I, first and foremost, I am the one who does it. Everything else just helps me do it. Well, thanks for sharing your very diverse and very background. That is quite a bit of experience. And let's talk a little bit about some of these videos. And I was curious, you referred earlier to the fact that you get videos sent to you from all over the world. I was wondering how you got so many from so many different places. Uh, how, how did that particular thing start with people sending you videos? Where well, I started back, you know, back when I started doing the videos, I, it was me who went and got them, you know? So I think the first one I ever put, which was on our Facebook page back in October of 2014, I think, um, it was somebody sent it to me, John, have you seen this? And that was right when Facebook had started allowing videos on their site. Uh, and, and so I watched, wow, that was crazy. I uploaded it to my Facebook page, kind of went nuts. 
so I started looking for some more and going, is there any lessons that I can learn out of these? And, uh, and so what happened there was, is I started realizing as a martial artist, as a firearms carrier, that there was a lot of lessons to be learned because quite frankly, just like in every other industry, there's a lot of mythology. There's a lot of uh, anecdotes, a lot of, well, I have a friend who stories. And, and so then I'm, I try myself to be evidence-based and to say, wait a minute, what is the actual, how do these actually go down? What are the actual statistics here? What are the, the, the real principles that really go into this that go beyond someone's anecdotes? So I started looking at some of those and uh, posting them when I found them on my Facebook page with some lessons in them and very quickly got known for that even on Facebook. And so then fans started sending them to me via my Facebook page. And so then it would be, hey, John, have you seen this one? And now that's 99.999%. In fact, I haven't had to go look for a video in forever. Uh, we're, we're quite frankly inundated with uh, fans sending us video requests. My CEO, uh, the CEO of Active Self-Protection, Stephanie Widener, um, she and a couple of our other staff keep up with our Facebook private messages and then people email me, they email her, um, and, and it's, it's an avalanche. I can tell you right now, uh, sitting on a tab minder that I have, I have about um, 150 badge camps to do and about 400 private citizen encounters to do that are sitting and waiting for me to get to them. So we have, I mean, just years of content ahead of us. Uh, and even if all video recording and all crime stopped today. I was gonna say, yeah, you have your hands pretty full. Yeah, it's, it's a labor of love. And, you know, we've talked about, should I branch off VagCams into its own channel because I have so many, I could do some more. And then my staff look at me like, you're crazy. Why would you put out more content? And so, yeah, that's where we are. Well, I can attest to the fact that you have people uh, all over the world watching as well. I sent some to some family friends that I have in Russia, actually, and they're watching because they find this quite fascinating being in that culture. And I know yeah. you have some some videos in, in Russia. I've seen a couple. Uh, yep. One that I recently saw was a robbery at a convenience store where a woman fought off a man. And it was a pretty impressive fight that she put up. And you gave her some pretty high marks for her her ability to ward that guy off. Yeah, there have been several, and, and we literally have them from all over the world. So the number one country on the channel is the United States. Um, I think that just reflects my the fact that I speak English, so the videos are in English. Uh, I'm from the U.S. Mo, you know, about two-thirds of my fans, 70% of the fans are from the U.S., so uh, about 46, 47% of the content on the channel is from the U.S. About 23% of the content on the channel is from Brazil. Uh, I think that's a a function of the fact that uh, video recording is pretty ubiquitous down there and uh, they also have a high poverty rate and a high population density. So you put, uh, and strict gun control, you put strict gun control with high population density and high poverty rates and you get violent crime. So um, that's yeah, I'm curious about issue. that because yeah. you, you do have a lot in Brazil and mm -hmm. you say they have a lot of gun control there, but it, there doesn't seem to be any shortage of guns that people are using, at least in the videos that you find. Are those legally acquired guns, do you know, or? Um... Oh, no, most of the ones, really, in order to carry a gun outside the home in Brazil, um, that is limited at this time to off-duty police officers. So to get an actual concealed carry permit in Brazil is non-existent. Um, and until recently, until about a year ago, um, to even have a permit to own a firearm was very difficult for a private citizen. Uh, their current president, Jair Bolsonaro, uh, has opened that and liberalized that quite a bit. 
Uh, but very rare before that. And so there's a little bit more uh, gun rights in Brazil, but they still can't carry. Uh, that said, the criminal population finds them very easy to get a hold of. And That's so the bad guys all case. have guns. Yeah. Yeah. Well, are there any videos in particular that stand out for you uh, anywhere in the world, as a matter of fact? Oh, I mean, all the time. I mean, we put up a new one literally every single day of the year. And there's a few. There's one out of Brazil with a, um, uh, a mom who uh, stopped an armed robbery of all the people standing outside her daughter's uh, school. It was for a Mother's Day presentation. And uh, she drew her firearm when a guy started threatening people with a gun and robbing them and uh, shot him. And actually, that was such a famous video that got that one got blown up so much, not just by me, but by their media as well that not only was she commended by the local uh, government, but she was actually elected to Brazil's legislature in their last uh, election cycle. So that's pretty cool. There's been several others that really stand out to me, both for the good and the bad. I think probably one of the biggest ones recently was um, the first time that we've seen actual um, shooting in a place of worship came in uh, White Settlement, Texas in December, the West Freeway Church of Christ. Yes. And that one stands out to me for a number of lessons that it teaches us about, uh, you know, protection from mass killings in, in houses of worship, uh, bunches of lessons there. And uh, I mean, there are a number along those veins, uh, several others out of, uh, there's one out of Tulsa, Oklahoma with a mom and a daughter trying to defend their liquor store from a guy coming in with a sawed off shotgun. That's pretty significant. As far as officer involved incidents, man, uh, I just put up this week, in fact, uh, an analysis of um, the Rayshard Brooks killing uh, from this last week in Atlanta. Uh, that one is obviously getting a lot of discussion right now. And, and so, uh, you know, it, it seems like every month it's like, yeah, that's another great one we really need to do. So it's, it, it's something that I'm, I don't think I'm going to run out of material to try to educate people as best I can. Yeah, I can't wait to look at the Brooks one and get your take on that. But with respect to the church in Texas, I found that incident very fascinating because it seemed like half the people in the church had firearms and they were able to put an end to the assault rather quickly. Was that your take? Well, you know, I, I think my take is just slightly different because, yes, there was a lot. There was probably seven or eight people with firearms there, but it wasn't just a good guy with a gun. It was a highly trained good guy with a gun. Uh you know, the, the reality is, unfortunately, when, when that murderer, uh, who was known to the church, drew a shotgun out of his trench coat, they knew he was trouble long before that. And the deacon who was kind of assigned to him was sitting on the back wall, tried to get his gun out, and, and unfortunately wasn't able to do so quickly enough. And in 3.1 seconds after everything started, um, he was the first person to die. And that's really unfortunate. Now, on the other hand, Jack Wilson, who was the head of their security there and who was highly trained with his handgun. Um, Jack owned a, a range for 20 years and was a firearms instructor and a competitive shooter. So he was highly skilled in his uh, application of the firearm. And he took one shot at 15 yards and hit that guy in the head in the middle of a chaotic incident. And so then everybody else swarmed in, but in fact, their guns didn't really do anything. So, so the reality is that the biggest lesson from the West Freeway Church of Christ shooting is it's really honestly not enough to simply have a gun. You have to be highly skilled with that gun. And so when we do our evidence-based pistol skills, for instance, <clears throat> one of the standards that we set is to be able to draw a gun from a holster and put a shot on a head-sized target at 15 yards 
in under four seconds. And uh, for most people who don't train regularly and don't practice regularly with their handgun, that is an exceedingly difficult shot. So I, I tell folks all the time, I'm all about uh, concealed carry. I'm all about training concealed carriers. I'm a second amendment absolutist. But if you're gonna carry a gun, it behooves you to be incredibly good with that gun. And most people, because of the Dunning-Kruger effect, think they're an awful lot better with a gun than they are. What is the Dunning-Kruger effect? Uh, the Dunning-Kruger effect is a known psychological phenomenon. And uh, you can uh, just Google it. And uh, a research from uh, these two guys, Dunning and Kruger, and what they find is that people who gain a very little bit of knowledge about a subject become exceedingly confident in the subject. And so if you look at the, the, a graph that they put out and, and the, uh, the vertical axis is confidence and then the, the horizontal axis is experience. And so if you go just a little ways to the right from, from the very left and they gain just a tiny bit of knowledge or experience, they gain supreme confidence. Uh, and then as they gain a little bit more knowledge, then that confidence goes way down again and then slowly builds over time with more experience. So you see this as supreme confidence with very little competence or very little abilities. And they actually call that the top of Mount Stupid. <laughs> that, that somebody can sit on the, the, you know, on the top of Mount Stupid feeling supremely confident in what they know with very little knowledge or very little skill or very little ability. And, and humans psychologically are just prone to vastly overestimate their competence. And so that's why like on my second channel, I talk about getting out the timer and uh, you know, uh, shooting to objective standards. And then uh, I also talk on the main channel all the time about the importance of skill and, and saying it's not just you know, being able to have a gun, it's not a magic talisman or a lucky rabbit's foot. You know, we, we jokingly call that, uh, you know, I got a lot of friends who are former army and every soldier in the army is issued a, a poncho liner and they call that a whoopee. And of course that comes from the eighties, the old eighties movie, Mr. Mom and the little boy in that movie, he has a security blanket that dad calls his whoopee. And, and for most people, for a lot of people, unfortunately their firearm is more of a whoopee than anything else. It just makes them feel safe. It doesn't really actually help them be safe. And one of my missions is to help people to convert their whoopee into a defensive tool. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right about that. And you think, that there are a lot of people out there who'll go buy a gun and they'll put it on their shelf or in their drawer and they think they're great because they got a magazine full of nine mil and they, they bought it. So therefore they're an expert. They've been to the range once or twice and that's it, but they haven't trained for time nor have they trained for shooting a moving target. And I think a lot of people underestimate how difficult it is to hit a moving target. Imagine someone running at you um, intimidating you with their weapon of their own, I think that'd be a very challenging situation for the average person to engage. Yeah, and I think that the average American male in particular, uh, for some reason, it's our cultural norm that the average American male is, uh, believes that they are born with the ability to do three things. They're born with the ability to fight, they're born with the ability to drive, and they're born with the ability to, shall we kindly say, fornicate. <laughs> and and all three of those things actually have to be taught you know those things don't come naturally and so uh you know especially you look and you go oh yeah you know i know how to shoot my uncle sh showed me how to shoot when i was a kid um okay but in operating a handgun is not all that difficult to proposition neither a long gun but to do it well is a different thing entirely and and i see untrained people win a lot of gunfights um, the gun is basically a noisemaker and the bad guys recognize how powerful a force multiplier it is. And I see people draw guns and bad guys run away 
I see people shoot and hit nothing of any consequence uh, and fire blindly all over the place, and that still sends bad guys scattering. But the, it's the ones that are determined that you got to worry about. And it is a competition, and I don't want to run into a good one and not be good enough to beat it. True. Now, with respect to some of these situations that you are reviewing online, can you tell us whether there are some important takeaways that cross all different situations or most different situations, whether it's a bar fight or a home invasion or a robbery? Are there any similar themes that run across all these situations? Oh yeah, hundred uh, percent. We, for certain, uh, we talk about this all the time that, I, and I do this as a live presentation, you know, we, we talk about lessons learned from analyzing 30,000 gunfights. And that's kind of where we're at at this point is having analyzed around 30,000 of them. And there are absolutely principles. And I always tell people the number one thing that most people do poorly is they don't pay attention to their world. And attention buys you time and time buys you options. Whether we're talking about a bar fight that you see some guy getting angry and you're like, you know, it's time for us to get out of here. Uh, or you're paying attention while you're driving and you see somebody getting angry and so you give them the little wave, hey man, my bad, I'm sorry, whatever. Or uh, you're walking into a convenience store, uh, you know, a stop and rob and you see, man, you know, there's bad juju on, already going on inside that store. I'm gonna go elsewhere. Uh, so many people, they just stumble into problems. So you're talking about either avoiding a negative situation or being able to de-escalate a situation, correct? Yes, that's my number two takeaway is that a commitment, uh, the, the self-defense lifestyle is a commitment to de-escalation, escape and avoidance. Um, yeah, and that's hard for a lot of people to do, I think, because in a road rage situation in particular, people's egos get involved, right? And you oh, don't want to be the one to lose. So he's honking at me, I'm going to honk back at you, I'm giving you the finger, etc. And then sometimes that can turn into a situation where somebody ends up dying. 100%. And I tell folks all the time, road rage is stupid. And it's a, that's what we call social violence. So that is, um, you've challenged my place in the social order. And so I'm going to, uh, you know, uh, make you pay for that violation of the social norm. And one of my biggest things that I tell people all the time is, you, would you act that way towards your grandma who cut you off like that, or your aunt, or your best friend? Of course you wouldn't, right? Because you have goodwill towards them. And secondarily, if somebody's screaming at you and hollering at you, you're never going to see that human being again. You so are never you going think? to run across them. So why am I going to have an ego battle with them? Because we are not in the same social circle and we will never see each other. So sometimes just a wave, hey man, my bad, you're right, I'm sorry. And um, you know, to, to be family friendly, you know, when somebody says, hey, F you, and I go, hey, you're right, man, F me, I'm totally there, I, I, I get it, my bad. How hard uh, is it to, to teach people that? It's hard because you have to overcome your own ego. But I also think the funny part is, is that, for instance, my martial arts teacher, Professor Lawrence Robinson at Attitude First Martial Arts Academy. Um, Professor Robinson is a seventh degree black belt. He has a 25 and 10 full contact karate um, professional record. So the dude's been in the, in the ring a good bit. And, uh, you know, he's also the kindest and most humble man you've ever met. He has no ego at all. Happy to say, I'm sorry. I, you know, hey, I made a mistake. Even if he didn't make a mistake in order to get out of a problem, doesn't want to fight doesn't want to have those problems and not because he's weak, but because he's very strong. And he yes. taught me a thing that I really think is important. And that is, you know, listen, when I was unable to protect myself, I, I would say, man, I don't want to fight you because I don't want you to hurt me. Now that I'm highly competent, and highly capable, I say, Hey man, I don't want to fight you because I don't want to hurt you. And <laughs> I don't have to tell him that, but <laughs> right. you know, uh, to say I'm confident enough in who I am and competent enough in my skills 
that I don't feel the need to get into ego battles because I know who I am. Well, let's talk a little bit about uh, the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, mm -hmm. because we're talking about being in dangerous situations and either avoiding them or de-escalating them. And we saw a number of riots, of course. We've seen violence. We've seen some people getting beat downs. Um, there was one video in particular I saw where a guy got out of his car with a bow and arrow and thought he was going to use that on the crowd, and he took a prompt beat down. What? Yeah, the, the bow and arrow yeah. was an interesting choice. Yeah, I thought so too. Um, and it didn't take very long for a massive crowd to descend on him and deliver that beat down to him. But right. what is the lesson that you take out of that or from other observations that you've made about employing a weapon in public, particularly in a very dangerous situation like a riot? And when you would deploy a weapon, what kind of weapon you would deploy and when you would deploy it? What can you tell us about that? Yeah, a couple of things. Allow me to say, I mean, I've said this on, on both my channels and those things. I mean, nobody that watched the George Floyd video um, saw anything there other than a murder. Uh, and that includes every police officer I know. And, right. Uh, so that was an egregious wrong, uh, number one. Number two, I think that all uh, conscientious Americans love the right to protest. Uh, the right to, to peaceable assembly is guaranteed in our First Amendment. And I actually value my First Amendment more than my Second Amendment. And uh, because of the five protections of the First Amendment, you know, the right to free speech, the right to peaceable assembly, the right to a free press, the right to the free worship, uh, and a right to the redress of grievances. <clears throat> and so I value those highly. And, and so uh, for Americans protesting peaceably, I, I have zero problem with that. I, I, even if I disagree with what they're protesting, I absolutely value their right to do so. Yes, now that absolutely. said... Um, when people are angry, uh, there's this known thing in the, in the world that says a person is smart, but people are stupid. And people can do panicky, dumb, irrational things. Again, a person generally is smart and an individual will do what's in their best interest and not do anything stupid. But people, you get them in a group and they can do incredibly stupid things. So when you're in a protest, most of the protests in America have been peaceful, have been uh, exactly what we expect a peaceable assembly to be. And that's great. And I, and, and if people say, well, John, would you ever, would you say, don't go to protest? No, I wouldn't say that because that's an important function of being an American. That said, understand, read the tea leaves, pay attention. And when you start seeing violence, when you start seeing people get angry and start throwing things, it's over. It's time to leave. Time to leave. Yeah. It is time to be gone. Sticking around and going, huh, those guys just started throwing rocks. This is kind of cool. No, it's not kind of cool. It's getting super dangerous. It's time to get the heck out of there, get back in your car and go home. So uh, what happens in, in a case, for example, where someone is trying to leave and they do get assaulted? So we've seen that happen in some cases, people, whether yeah, they're on foot or in vehicles. Yeah. And, and so, you know, big things here, the Albuquerque, New Mexico incident comes to mind and that was a big deal. Now, what we didn't get to see is what led up to it. So we saw a man who... Uh, on the, the cell phone video that was released, seemed to be trying to get away from a bunch of protesters. One of them hit him over the head with a skateboard. And when he hit him over the head with a skateboard, a guy drew his gun and shot him. Yes. Um, and so the, the rules don't change. The principles of legal and moral self-defense don't change in a riot uh, compared to the rest of your life. So you always have the right to, to protect yourself from harm. No one has the right to harm you. And you have the right to use a reasonable amount of force to do so. Now, against ordinary physical force, 
you can use ordinary physical force to stop that. What I mean by that is if somebody slaps you upside the head, you can't draw a gun and shoot them. That's using deadly physical force to defend against a physical or an ordinary physical force. Uh, but you can certainly, you know, if somebody threatens you with slapping upside the head, you can stop that. You can even punch them back. That would be reasonable. <clears throat> so in, in the case in Albuquerque, the, the problem is, is that we don't know if he provoked the incident. We don't know if he was actively retreating. So there's a lot of details here that can make things a little bit different. But generally speaking, <clears throat> if you're trying to leave and you're, you're fleeing a situation, so you're running away from a mob and you're like, oh man, it's getting dangerous, we're gonna go. And somebody says, no, you're not. And you're like, no, I'm leaving right now. <clears throat> and they threaten you with physical violence for that. So they, you know, if you try to leave, I'm gonna punch you in the mouth. Well, then you have the right to use ordinary physical force to prevent that. Uh, if they instead say, well, I have a baseball bat that says you're not going anywhere. Well, now, now we're talking about somebody who is an imminent threat of death or great bodily harm. Uh, somebody with a baseball a bat. Weapon. <clears throat> Right, as somebody with a baseball bat is a reasonable person would say, gosh, man, if he hits me with that bat, is it likely I'm gonna head to the hospital? Yes, it's highly likely. That's gonna break a bone, that's going to require medical attention, that's gonna put me in the hospital, which is kind of the definition of great bodily harm. And generally yeah, you're, the law- You're touching on something really interesting here too, because if you look at FBI statistics, for example, it appears that the use of blunt objects is the number one murder weapon in the country. Yeah, 100%. Firearms, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, somebody hitting you with a baseball bat or a tire iron is a much more common way of dying than somebody shooting you, especially with a rifle or, or any kind of long gun. Yes, so even if you're not in a stand-your-ground state, in, in your understanding, does the law look at that as a deadly weapon that would justify deadly force? And I know there's a lot of context that, we, that we'd have to explore, but in the most general terms, is that something the law would see as a deadly weapon that would justify using deadly force? Pretty much any force multiplier that somebody has turns a situation into a, a imminent threat of great bodily harm. Now, there's a difference. Okay, so, so the big difference here is a baseball bat, for instance. Is somebody carrying a baseball bat a deadly threat to you? Well, what you have to meet is you have to meet this, this three-pronged or triangle of, uh, of intent, uh, ability, opportunity, and either intent or jeopardy. So do they have the ability to hurt you with that? Well, is carrying a baseball bat generally seen as ability to do you deadly force? Depends on who it is. Uh, I mean, a grown man carrying a baseball bat could certainly do deadly force to me, but a three-year-old carrying a bat certainly couldn't, or a 94-year-old woman may not be able to. So is it able? Well, that depends on some of the other circumstances, but generally a healthy adult carrying a baseball bat has the ability to do you deadly harm. Do they have the opportunity to do you deadly harm? Well, you might say, uh, depends again, because if, I'm, if there's nothing standing between us, then yes, they do. If I am on the other side of a, uh, an impassable chasm, so if, if you know, they are on one side of a fence that they can't climb and I'm on the other side, then no, they don't have the opportunity. And then finally, do they have the intent? So uh, somebody walking with a baseball bat towards a, uh, a ball field is not showing any intent to do me harm unless I have other cues. So ability, opportunity, and intent are the things that we really want to see. Now, really, you brought up stand your ground. Uh, it, it really doesn't matter. Stand your ground is, is vastly misunderstood in America by people who are pro-Second Amendment and pro-self-defense as well as the other side, because all stand your ground says is that you don't have to retreat if you have a safe avenue. And when you don't have the stand your ground, it says if there is a safe avenue, then you have a duty to retreat if you 
are able to. Now that only applies if you have a completely safe route of retreat. If you don't have a completely safe route of retreat, then you don't have any ability to retreat and therefore you don't have a duty to do something that you can't do. So that's really all it says. And I tell people in stand your ground states, if you have the ability to retreat rather than use deadly force, you'd be a fool not to. Absolutely. You'd be a fool not to just get out of there. Absolutely. Yeah. Why would you want so to from engage a practical, in that? Yeah. And so from a practical perspective, as a self-defender, they're no different because the only time that I would want to use deadly force is if I have no other option. Uh, and people ask me all the time, I will say this, people uh, all the time, they say, John, you know, if this happens, can I shoot somebody? And I always say that's the wrong question to ask. Never ask, <laughs> can I? Always ask, must I? And, and, and you say, wait a minute, it, you know, if this gets into this situation, can I get away with shooting a guy? Well, there's plenty of things you can get away with that you still maybe get prosecuted for that you might have significant problems with. I think a but lot if of you people, say, must I? I think a lot of people also have fantasies about being that, that guy who's going to take on the world and defend and protect in any situation and, and stand up and be the winner of the victor uh, using their firearm because people, let's face it, they, they do dream about these uh, incidents happening and coming out victoriously. Yeah, absolutely. But recognize that if you have to use your firearm in self-defense, whether it's in a mob or otherwise, you're, the rest of your life is going to change. Uh, nothing is going to be the same. You're going to pay a huge price in many capacities, emotionally, spiritually, or socially, financially, uh, maybe employment, those kinds of things. And so uh, you only do that. You only put up with that change if the alternative is so bad you can't live with it. So in other words, if you say, man, he's going to kill my wife if I don't do something. And so I'll put up with all that to protect yeah. my wife. Now you refer often to uh, insurance mm -hmm. that um, gun owners should have. And I'm curious, what does that insurance that you discuss often in your videos provide for a gun owner if they're involved in a dangerous situation where they have to use their firearm? Yeah, so there's a couple differences here. You know, we generally use the phrase insurance, but uh, recognize a couple things. I actually don't recommend any of the products that are actually insurance. And the reason for that is, is that um, if, you, if you have to, uh, if, if you do anything wrong and are convicted of any crime whatsoever, Insurance can never in the United States by federal law cover an illegal act. Right. And so if you, for instance, were happened to be trespassing, like you didn't realize they had a no gun sign. And so you walked past it, but now you're trespassing. And so then the DA decides, well, you maybe did all these other things, right? But I'm still going to get you on the trespassing and it's a misdemeanor trespass. Well, now you weren't where you were legally allowed to be. And so those can um, not pay for things. So there's a couple differences. There are some insurance products in the market, but there are also memberships, service memberships. And, and several of those companies in those service memberships, and I'm a member of uh, Firearms Legal Protection myself, there's a couple other good ones in the market, but I like FLP. Uh, what they say is if you're a member of our organization, then and you're involved in a defensive gunfight or a defensive use of force, some of those provide for other weapons as well if you used a, a pepper spray or a knife or something like that. Uh, FLPs one, then uh, we will cover the legal bill. So we will pay for the attorneys and the expert witnesses and those things um, for both the criminal and the civil trial. And so those are two different things. Some say, hey, we have an insurance product. We'll insure you up to an X dollar amount for your legal fees or for judgments. Uh, the defensive services memberships instead say, no, we will cover the attorney um, and we will pay for and hire the attorney for you to defend you through all these things. And I do recommend that they're not expensive. I mean, they're anywhere from 10 to maybe 35 or $40 a month. 
Uh, the one that I have is 21 bucks a month and covers my family. And that seems like an easy, cheap peace of mind against what could easily be uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars in attorney fees. Oh, easily, yeah. Legal fees are insanely expensive. And with respect to the insurance products you referred to, it is worth mentioning again that they do have disclaimers and they're not going to cover illegal activity. No, none of them will. And also, you know, recognize that if you're going to feel like, okay, I'm going to be covered by one of those, uh, all of them have things like if you're uh, impaired, then they're not going to cover you. You know, what, what you did, if what you did you were impaired during, then uh, that's not going to happen. So if you're out drinking and have to kill somebody, have to shoot somebody because otherwise you're going to die, well, you're probably on the hook for your own bills because you're impaired. And, uh, and I know, you know, most of these folks are good people and they're not trying to exclude folks and those kinds of things, but um, they're not going to ensure recklessness and they're not going to protect reckless behavior. They also almost, uh, all of them that I've seen exclude things like um, uh, household violence. So if there's any kind of um, domestic partnership problems, a woman is getting beat by her husband and gets their gun and shoots him while they're doing that. That's a domestic situation. Nobody's going to cover that. I'm curious whether you heard about this story in Florida a few years ago where there was a domestic violence situation and it was either a wife or a girlfriend who took a gun and fired off a round into the ceiling. Mm -hmm. And I believe this might have been before the standard ground uh, law, but I'm not even sure if it would have applied anyway. But she was actually convicted of assault. Uh, are you familiar with that story? Yeah, they prosecuted her for assault, in fact, but those that, that ended up, um, they changed the law because of that case. Uh, okay. That particularly in the state of Florida now, they actually have a warning shot law. Now, I think warning shots are a bad idea on every level. And I don't you tell think my students, that sometimes, now I understand you're saying they're wrong, but sometimes people are doing it because they don't want to kill anybody and they're just sending a message that, hey, I will if you force me to. Yeah, I believe that uh, the presence of the firearm, if I have a firearm in my hands and I say, stand, stay away from me or I will shoot you, um, that is, if, if they will not listen to that, then I don't think discharging the firearm will make them listen, quite frankly. Okay, do you think panic plays a role in that situation? Well, I think it can. I think people panic all the time, which is one of the reasons that I tell folks to get significant training. So then that way they're acting in an objectively moral and reasonable way. Yes. So then that way that doesn't happen. Because of course, when you discharge a firearm uh, without an intent to harm somebody, well, you're doing several things. Number one, you're sending a projectile off somewhere and it's going to come to rest somewhere. And uh, that endangers people uh, because you don't know what's on the other side of that wall or through that ceiling. True. Number two, your defensive firearm has a limited capacity. Uh, whether or not that's a five shot revolver or a modern full-size handgun with 18 rounds in it, you've still used some of your capacity to no effect. And so, and then third, the person that you're going to dissuade here, think about this, they're, they don't believe you with the presence of a gun and a verbal warning, but then you expect them to believe you when you shoot in a manner that does not harm anyone. So, so probably to that person that won't be dissuaded by the presence of the gun in your hands in a defensive posture, uh, what's the chance of them saying, oh, well, they've shot now, and so now I know the gun works, and I will listen. It's a pretty small slice, quite frankly. So, so I teach, uh, if you need to get a gun in hand, absolutely. A low ready position, absolutely. A firm verbal command, absolutely. Uh, but I teach warning shots, no. They're, they're a bad idea on every level. How much training does it typically take 
in your mind for people to be prepared to deal with situations like that one or robberies or home invasions? How many hours do you think it normally takes someone to be prepared? Well, man, it's really hard to say. Like I say, I see untrained people defend themselves with firearms all the time. So if you get a, 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 a crappy bad guy who is your typical crackhead, uh, you can maybe do that with none. But I always ask folks, what's the, on the bell curve of percentage of bad guy capabilities, how, what percentage of those bad guys do you want to be able to defend yourself against? If you say, I'm cool with the bottom 20% of bad guys, you probably need none. Uh, if you say, no, nah, I want to be a little bit better than that. I want to, I want to at least get to, you know, 50% uh, or 60%. Well then to do that, I tell folks really takes this. It takes a commitment to perhaps uh, as much as four hours of training per year. So maybe an initial eight hour class and then every year, a half day of training. And then a couple times a year, in addition to that, getting out to your local range, maybe as many as four more times. So once a quarter, in addition to your, to your yearly training, getting out to the range. And if you do that, you're probably 50-50. So we're not talking a ton of training for some basic proficiency, which is a good thing because yeah, training- Yeah, are easy. Yeah, and training can be quite expensive. I mean, if you're going to the range and shooting thousand rounds, you're gonna spend quite a bit of money. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, uh, for most people, if you wanna to get to the 75 percentile, then it's not really any more exp expense, honestly. What it means is that you're gonna, you're gonna spend a little bit of time, maybe five minutes, three times a week, dry firing uh, and doing dry practice. And we teach all that on active self-protection extra to, to gain a higher level of proficiency. If you, if you commit to five minutes a day, three days a week of dry fire, and then once a quarter going to the range and once a year taking a half day class, uh, you are in, in probably the top 5% of firearms carriers, quite frankly. That's a great point because I talk to people often about just practicing things like holstering their weapon, taking it out and doing their safety checks and how important that is. And I think if you're comfortable doing that and you're comfortable wearing it around the house, you've already taken yourself a level higher than a lot of people who, again, just buy it and put it on the shelf, right? Yes, you are definitely well on the way to not owning a whoopee. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the way people carry their weapons also because, or store them, because we have some people who like to open carry, some people like to conceal carry, some people are wearing their weapons around the house and others have them locked up in a gun safe. And I know this is kind of a broad spectrum discussion, but if you are someone who is concerned about a home invasion or a burglary, what's the best way to store your weapon? Well, if you're, if you're concerned about home defense, then you want your firearm to be uh, available to you, but it also has to be protected from unauthorized access. So you always in storing firearms or staging firearms have to think about unauthorized access. Now, if you are somebody who you live alone or you and your spouse and your spouse is perfectly competent with a firearm as well or, or responsible with them and you don't have children, you don't have grandkids coming over or whatever, and you want to leave you know, a gun on the mantle, fine, that's, that's okay. I do worry a little bit about burglars. Um, but for instance, in my world, I have children who uh, are high risk and are unauthorized accessors and can't um, be trusted around firearms. So we keep our firearms in a quick access safe. Now they make quick access safes today that are either do, you know, simplex locks that you have to put in a code in a particular manner or biometric, you use your fingerprint or uh, things like that or RFID, and you can get into those very quickly. But what is very so, quickly? Yeah, you know, a second and a half, two seconds is pretty pretty good now. Um, and so 
when we talk about um, having a gun that's closet ready, for instance, um, as a shotgun, say you're gonna you're gonna use a shotgun for home defense, which is a very powerful tool. The hallway howitzer is a, is a big deal. Um, when that's we say closet ready, right? Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we jokingly call it, yeah, the, the repeating claymore or the, the hallway howitzer. Um, then when we talk about closet ready, we say we want the chamber empty, but the magazine full. And because shotguns are not drop safe, right? And uh, it ready to to chamber and go, and that's that's how we generally keep those. Um, if it's locked up, on the other hand, in a quick access safe, you you might say no. We want it because it's in a quick access safe. We want it with the chamber full and the safety on. Okay, fine. And and either of those work, but secured from unauthorized access for sure. Um, chamber the alternative full. To that, I'm sorry to interrupt, uh, but the chamber full of that is not drop safe even with the safety on is it right which is why i wouldn't recommend that if you're putting it in the closet right so if it's going to just be kept in the closet then we keep it closet ready which is chamber okay. empty magazine full if it's kept in a quick access safe like uh there are several companies now that make a full-size long gun capable safe okay uh, then then it's secured and nobody can touch it until i pick it up and so then uh what i keep closet ready is because then if god forbid it falls over or, uh, you know, if somebody who, who is unauthorized sees it, do they know how to load it? It, it provides a little bit more safety. If it's locked up, and, it, and it, again, it is in a quick access safe, and it cannot be accessed by anyone else, then maybe we can talk about chamber four. Okay. Now, you live in Arizona, and I think that's an open carry state, like in many states. Am I correct in that? We are even better than that. We are constitutional carry. You constitutional do not need a permission slip better. from the government to carry in any way you would like. <laughs> 2A is your permission slip. <laughs> That's right. So I'm curious, when it comes to open versus concealed carry, is there an advantage or disadvantage when, let's say, you're walking into a dangerous area or an area where there's a potential emerging threat, would you not want to open carry? And, and why do people open carry? You know, I think that uh, some people open carry for a lot of reasons. I, I personally believe that open carry should be legal in all 50 states in the District of Columbia. And I also think it should be rare. Uh, I, I uh, Generally, I go about concealed carrying. I generally almost never open carry. Uh, the only time I would ever really honestly open carry is teaching a very basic pistol class. And that's while I'm on the range. But otherwise, I concealed mm -hmm. carry. Um, there's the hot debate here. And some people would argue and say, well, police open carry because the presence of their firearm uh, is enough to cool off some, some conflicts and people don't want to fight with them around. They're, that's not wrong. However, one of the reasons it does that is somebody already knows they're carrying, so why conceal it? It's easier to get to if it's not concealed. Uh, I, on the other hand, people don't know that. And I like the element of surprise. Um, and I'm a, I am a, a very kind guy and I have never met a stranger in my life and I want everybody to be my best friend. And so I don't ever want to make somebody uh, feel like, Oh, that guy is a threat to me. No, I'm, I'm your friend. Uh, and then if bad things start happening, I'm still your friend and I am going to take care of that problem. I think some people so, also um, use open carry to make a political statement and some people do it out of just convenience. Right. I agree. Yep, and, and if you're gonna open carry, the only thing that I say is that you need to have a good holster with active retention. That means if somebody were to come and try to take that gun out of the holster, that the holster would hold it. And uh, I will say 
that the number one way that people do that is a particular product known as the Blackhawk Serpa because you can get it at Walmart and you can get it at a lot of gun stores. That particular product is unsafe and is garbage. And if you have a Blackhawk Serpa, you need to get rid of it. The correct answer instead is to get a Safari Land ALS. I have no relationship with Safari Land whatsoever, but their holster, the, the locking design is different. The release design is different and it's not unsafe like the Serpa is. So well, if you're gonna open carry, it's very important. So if you're gonna open carry, active retention holster, carry it on the belt appropriately. And I understand have, that, yeah, that could make you a target. Have you seen situations where people have had their firearms just ripped out of their holsters when they were open carrying? Yes, I, I have. It, now, not as much in the United States. So I've seen that all over the world, particularly in places where gun control is very strict. Police officers get killed for their guns all the time. Uh, it's a very valuable item. It's like walking around with a Rolex on uh, is the reality of things. Uh, I don't see that in the U.S. very often, but I, ha I do have one video on the channel of a guy who you can see his concealed gun. Um, so it, it, his concealment failed, and so it became open carry. And uh, he had a guy basically beat the tar out of him and take his gun because he saw it there. So, uh, you know, that's only one anecdote. So I think that's kind of rare in the U.S., um, and you're right. I do think some people open carry as a political statement. They want people to know that they're exercising their Second Amendment rights. And uh, I mean, okay, that's fine. I, I kind of tend not to exercise my rights at people. Uh, and mm -hmm. I don't generally recommend exercising rights at people. But, you know, especially if that's an expression, in my opinion, of free speech, not really the Second Amendment. Now it's a First Amendment. Uh, that carrying of the gun in public is a First Amendment issue. And so, okay, I can protect unpopular speech. Yeah. Now, I want to shift a little bit to the police because you touched on the fact that sometimes, well, you've seen a police get disarmed in another country, but I want to talk a little bit about how police are looking at law enforcement now in the framework of what's happened to George Floyd. And we see, for example, in Atlanta, it appears anyway, that some police are unwilling to respond to calls. Some are scared of prosecution if they defend themselves. And we're seeing some of the police kind of withdraw and look towards early retirement instead. I'm wondering, what's your take on that? Well, I think the big challenge here was, was that there was a very clearly established use of force paradigm. And uh, if, if we as a society don't want police officers to use that, well, then what we have to do is tell them that in advance. When we give them a standard and then don't hold to that standard, then uh, you change the rules in the middle and don't expect them to keep coming to work when you do that. Right. Is the reality of things. So, I agree. No one should be surprised. Right. And, and so that was the big problem. Um, I, I did the um, Rayshard Brooks uh, killing on my channel. It actually went live yesterday. And in any objective sense, by the rules as they actually exist and by the laws of the state of Georgia, as well as federal law, um, what uh, Officer Rolf did was objectively reasonable. And, and yeah. And it appears from what I've seen also that the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, hadn't even completed their investigation yet when they decided to charge the officer. So, yeah, they uh, haven't. They still yeah, haven't. Yeah. So that's pretty, pretty shocking that they would move ahead with a prosecution in advance of the investigation wrapping up. Right. And so I think what we're seeing is we're seeing officers in Atlanta show that they don't have any confidence that the... Uh, the government of Atlanta, the people of Atlanta, the, the uh, higher ups in their department will support them and, and not even not even support them, but give them due process. 
And yeah, and that's a tragedy. And that's a pretty big problem. So, yeah. you know, again, we have, we have a legal system and a justice system that does things the way they do for a reason. Now, of course, um, most, and I know so many police officers, and these men and women are some of the very best in America, and they work so hard to, uh, to protect their communities. Um, and are there bad apples? Of course they're bad apples. I mean, there's bad apples in every profession. You get a group of humans together, you're going to have some bad people. No question. Uh, and, and that includes cops. There's going to be bad cops, no question. And we should weed them out because we give them uh, a, a, uh, the ability and the authority to do violence on our part. So we should hold them to a high standard. And they are held to a high standard. And we should be able to weed out bad actors. No question about that. But yeah. we should do so with due process and do so fairly. And yeah, go ahead. so I, I think that, that in Atlanta in particular, what we're seeing is we're seeing a, a counter protest against unfair treatment. I agree. And I think that's spreading. And now they're looking to defund, uh, yet to be defined what defund means, police in Minneapolis and potentially Seattle and other places. I don't know what the future of policing is going to look like, but I think it's going to be a challenge if they think they're going to send social workers to every domestic violence situation. What do you think? Oh, boy. I, you know, so here's the problem, of course is that in one hand, if you say, well, listen, we want to shrink the responsibilities of police and send somebody else to mental health calls. I, I think that's fine. I, I think most cops I know, they hate those calls. Mm -hmm. they, they hate going to an emotionally disturbed person because they know the chances of violence are high. And, um, and so when you say, hey, we're going to send a social worker or somebody trained in family conflict to a domestic dispute. Well, what you got to think about is, when do they call 911? They don't call 911 when they say we're having a problem. So this involves, if you're gonna make that change, you have to change the entirety of American society to say, hey, what we want you to do is when you're having an argument and it gets heated, before there's ever any problems, call this number, whether it's 611 or 911, whatever, and say, hey, we need a, a, a family intervention. And then we will send a social worker your way. Okay, fine, I think that's fine. Mm -hmm. But when under our current system, you wait until, oh my gosh, Jim is drunk and mad and is waving around a bat. Uh, or yeah. he punched me in the face really hard. And so now I need, I need help. Uh, yeah, that's important. The other thing is, you know, they, they would have to defund the police. I don't know where the money for all this would come from, um, mm -hmm. but you would have to, to recalibrate the allocation of financial resources and getting that formula correct, I think would be a little challenging for quite a while. And I don't think it would lead to anything satisfactory in the near term, perhaps in the long term, but I think that's a major challenge. And you as know, you said, yeah, go ahead. I've, I've posited maybe a particular idea that says, and I don't know, this would be expensive. This isn't defunding the police. This is actually increasing funding for police. But if we said, hey, wait a minute, we're just really worried about uh, this idea of domestics and emotionally disturbed persons and those things, that instead of sending um, uniformed officers who are, you know, again, their uniform, their badge, all their equipment on them is, is important uh, for their job, and, but it is also a symbol of authority. And so, oh gosh, the cops are here, I'm in trouble. So if instead we had a, a plainclothes um, group that maybe still had all the tools on them, they had their OC spray, they had a, a firearm, they had some handcuffs if they need them, and backup available quickly so they can get somebody there. But it's not, hi, I'm officer so-and-so with the you know Atlanta police. It's, um, hi, my name's Jim, and I'm here from the city of Atlanta to help you. And 
uh, let's see if we can chill this out or whatever. And they don't get reviewed based on their, um, you know, arrest records or, you know, their fitness reports come in. How many conflicts did I deescalate? How many, you know, how many people did I help in the community? Well, maybe we could do that, but that's going to take some time and that's going to take some willingness for everybody to realize, well, this guy really is a cop, but he's not trying to do copy things. Yeah, that you are talking about a complete overhaul of the way we operate as a country, and it would take a very large amount of money in my estimation, mm -hmm. but perhaps it's, it's worth going through the analysis. Uh, well, I, and I again, yeah. in my opinion, now I'm just going to state an opinion of John Correa here. I'm not saying active self-protection's opinion. I'm just saying John Correa. Um, I think that that money could probably come from ending the drug war. And uh, mm -hmm. if, if we stopped uh, putting people in jail for growing plants or uh, smoking plants, <laughs> then uh, the vast majority of our prison system, at least half of our prisoners would be released and our justice system, wouldn't, we wouldn't need to be enforcing those things. If we also told police officers that they don't need to be enforcing things like petty traffic uh, problems and those kinds of things, um, then that would free up resources. So if we end the drug war and those things, it would, it would literally free up billions of dollars every yeah. year uh, to perhaps do these things and increase the social uh, uh, network that we have. And I, and I think that would maybe be something for us to talk about as a society. Yeah, that's true. And I actually interviewed a police officer last week on the show, and he mentioned how he just despised uh, the fact that a lot of police were used as revenue generators for the state. And that is far too often the case in many communities. Yeah, I think you're right. hundred percent. Yeah. So, Let's talk quickly about gun rights in the country because, again, in the context of what we've been seeing going on the last few months, we are seeing a push to reduce gun rights in many states and even at the federal level. I'm wondering whether you think our rights will be able to weather this storm and what do you think the future of gun control is in America, let's say in the next four to five years? Oh, I actually think that the, the current status of things that the gun uh, control debate is over and has shifted radically in the last two months. How so? And uh, because of, of COVID-19 and because of the, the protests and the riots, you saw as the country locked down in the first week of March, uh, we had a surge in first-time gun owners that is literally unprecedented. Something like 3 million firearms were sold in uh, March of 2020, two and a half million of those are estimated to have been sold to first-time firearms owners because they were worried about their safety. And then uh, in April, and, and we had about the same, and then in May, as the protests started, we had this new huge surge. Uh, after George Floyd's murder, we had a huge surge because of the protests and the riots of firearms owners in America. And I think as well, um, my friends, who are minorities, people of color, are, are going, wait a minute, you know, we're worried about the police being having a monopoly on force. And, and so we want to make sure that we have the ability to protect ourselves if, God forbid, we have to protect ourselves against the police. Now, I'm not suggesting they should or they do need to protect themselves against the police. Occasionally they do. But occasionally we do. And, yep. and the Second Amendment is about the last-ditch ability to throw off tyranny. That's and correct. so. And so I applaud that. And I say, listen, I, in my opinion, the Second Amendment is not a political right. It's a civil right. Yes, I agree. And as several years ago, I think Indiana was on the cutting edge of this because they passed a state law that allowed 
uh, citizens to use force against police officers who came to their houses and essentially did a no-knock warrant. And if they shot the cop in defense of some of them busting in their house, they were exonerated. Yeah, and I mean, I think we saw that recently in our news with the, the murder of Brianna Walker and, and how terrible that was. And so um, I, I really think that anything else now, you know, we see that uh, the Supreme Court just denied cert to 10 Second Amendment cases. Yeah. Um, I, I honestly think they're waiting for uh, Justice Ginsburg to retire uh, before they grant cert to some of these cases so that they have a stronger majority. But that's see that as it may. Go ahead. Uh, no, I said that's an interesting take on it. I think it only takes four of the nine justices to grant cert, but I think quite frankly, um, we have three, uh, we, have, we have four very strong second amendment justices. I think that the reality is, is that Chief Justice Roberts has become a swing vote. I think he sees himself now as kind of the new Kennedy on the bench Clearly. going back and forth. Clearly, yes. And then we have four justices that are uh, left leaning and not as interested in second amendment rights, particularly among them, uh, Justice Ginsburg. Yes. And so, I think that, that that four strong conservative block is waiting for Justice Ginsburg to retire, anticipating a Trump reelection, hoping for another pro-Second Amendment justice. And now we've got five, uh, whether or not Chief Justice Roberts joins. That's a really interesting take on things. Yeah, and I'm curious about that. And so you think that the aftermath of George Floyd means people are more pro-Second Amendment and you think that that will translate either into people calling the representatives or voting against gun control representatives is, do I have that I mean, right? So think about this in this particular venue, right? So the, the two arguments for gun control have been A, that uh, guns in the hands of good people don't do good things. So guns inherently are a, a moral evil. And B, we don't need them because we live in a safe place that the police will protect us. Yes, that has been the argument and they have never been true. And, and those are, but those arguments go hand in hand. So now yes. I have in the eyes of people, uh, especially people of color right here in America and uh, the, the oppressed and, and many of my friends on the political left, all of a sudden they look and go, wait a minute, that second prong, the police are here to protect you, I can't count on today. That's their, their current belief. And so wait a minute, if that's the case, who does? Well, of course, for my friends who are gun rights supporters, they've always said, no, you've always been the primary agent in your own protection. The police have never been able to protect you. And uh, while we respect the police, we recognize that, that having the ultimate authority in the hands of the people is what we want. That's what our political tradition requires. That's where the power has always been and that's where it should be. Right, and that to me, so, so again, I'm, I'm not a Republican. I think my Republican friends uh, like control just as much as my Democrat friends. They just like it in a different fashion. <laughs> um, and so uh, I always say, listen, I am a, 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 I'm a libertine. I want people to be able to just do what you want and leave me alone, you know? Mm -hmm. um, Violate the non-aggression principle. Yes, yes. I'm a big live and let live fan. So uh, that being said, I think that what we've seen over the last three, four months has been a vast shift in that. And to say now, so, so now what, do you, what is gonna be the argument for my, my democratic friends in office if they say, hey, we want stricter gun control? Um, are we gonna say now, well, what we want is we want people of lower socioeconomic status to not be able to resist the police if they need to. Mm -hmm. That seems to be a loser to me. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I think that for the next number of years, and, and I have a number of friends that right now as a firearms instructor, I am teaching private lessons 
and little little group classes like crazy right now for people who are like, John, I'm a first time gun owner. I've never wanted a gun. I'm scared of guns, but I feel like I need to have one to protect myself and my family. And then they get angry because they're like, wait a minute, I thought buying a gun was super easy and I had to jump through all these hoops. And you go, no, not really. So now let's talk about what that is and remember your vote counts. That's right, yes. And, and so I think, honestly, I think what we're gonna see in our next election cycle is that um, gun rights are an important part, but nobody can argue against them at this point. Fascinating, thank you for that analysis. And I'm just curious also, if we can just talk about the types of firearms that you think are best for self-defense, what, what, what do you typically recommend for someone well, who is just going out to buy their first uh, handgun? Okay, so if we, if we restrict it to handguns, that's an interesting thing in and of itself because it depends on your political persuasion, right? It depends on what the politics are in your arena. So for instance, um, my son is a Virginia resident and uh, Virginia flopped to blue pretty quick here in the last year and self-defense in Virginia is not exactly as friendly as it once was. Correct. And so my suggestion to my son was to get a high quality home defense shotgun for defending his home because uh, the shotgun is so long established in American uh, parlance and somebody's bird gun, their Remington 870 is not going to cause the same media sensation if he had an AR-15, for instance. I also so, think properly yeah. set up can be a devastating tool and very effective. Yeah, well, would you suggest, why did you suggest that, I should ask, instead of going out and getting a handgun? Well, it, it depends on what you want to use. I mean, seriously, if, if you're looking for a gun to carry outside the home, well, then you're going to carry a handgun because you're not going to sl sling a long gun around. But if you told me today, if you said, John, you were going to get in a gunfight today and there's no way around that, I'm taking a long gun to the fight. I'm taking a rifle or my shotgun because of the much easier ability to shoot it and the much higher capacity and, and the terminal effect is much better. So uh, we don't send our soldiers to war with handguns. I mean, they might have one with them, but they're not fighting with them. Definitely and, and not. We, use, we send them with long guns on purpose. So if I know I'm gonna get in a fight, long gun. If I know I don't have to carry it, so it's just being used for defending the home, long gun. Now you can, we can argue about a, uh, a modern semi-automatic rifle like an AR-15 versus a, an older tool like a shotgun. I think both have their place. Um, but if, for, for going out uh, in public, you say, no, I, I want to start having a gun for my personal protection out in public. Now we're talking about carrying a handgun. Simple as that. Yeah. I, I constantly can't wait to see what happens in Virginia um, in the next election, presidential especially. But, mm -hmm. you know, Governor Northam is not the most popular guy in the world in Virginia. And there have been a lot of Second Amendment sanctuary counties and cities and towns have been popping up everywhere. And there's been massive demonstrations against his gun control agenda. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is a lot of um, energy to kind of turn the tide back towards being more of a purplish or red state rather than blue. But of course, Northern Virginia is always the the kind of um, X factor in Virginia. Always is, always is. So, uh, you know, if you're gonna go with a handgun, then uh, a couple things. Number one, I would recommend to people that before you go out and buy your first one, that you would take a class first. I would recommend, you know, get somebody who is a professional and maybe spend an hour with them or take, many ranges have 
uh, introduction to handgun classes that are a couple hours long. It maybe cost you 50 bucks uh, or 100 bucks and teach you what a handgun does. And then if you can, if you have access, I always say there's many ranges in America that rent firearms. And to go, once you've taken a class, you know what the parts and pieces are, you know kind of what you're looking for, go and rent several and then buy the one that meets your needs the best. And, and sometimes saying, well, what gun is the best gun? That's like asking me what shoes are the best shoes? Because what shoes are the best shoes for me uh, are not necessarily the best for you. Now that said, there's always a trade-off between, between capability and portability. So a smaller gun is easier to carry about your person, but a larger gun is easier to use. And uh, the bad advice that I hear, especially given to women, is that, oh, your first gun should be a snub-nosed revolver because it's small and it's easy and it's reliable. Well, first of all, reliable is a, a very subjective thing and, and snub-nosed revolvers are not nearly as reliable as modern semi-automatic pistols in reality, or not any more reliable at least. I think and, people say that because they've always heard other people say it as well. Yep, 100%. Yeah. Uh, and number two, a snub-nosed revolver is very hard to shoot well and recoils like crazy and is not easy to, to handle. So bigger is easier for everyone because physics. And uh, you can get a big gun with a small grip for somebody with small hands. And not all women have small hands either. I, I have women in my life who have very long fingers, very big palms, big hands. So um, finding one that fits is good. Now that said, um, I would stay away from, if you can, budget is always a concern. If you have a very tight budget, you know, if your budget is, um, is very tight. Well, then, you know, you can uh, obviously then see, okay, uh, maybe I have to buy one of the lower end guns. Maybe you've got to buy something like um, a, a, a Ruger SR9 or uh, a Smith & Wesson, their SD9VE is a, is a very good um, but budget gun. Now, if you're going to say, you know, gosh, John, I want to step up into a, a decent quality gun that I know I'm going to be able to use for a long time. Then I think you're going to stay with brands like Heckler & Koch is the brand that I carry personally. I'm actually HK's brand ambassador, so take that with a grain of salt. Um, I am because they are delightful. Something like a Glock, something like Smith & Wesson's M&P line, like a Sig Sauer, uh, a CZ, a Beretta, uh, FN, Walter, uh, those kind of folks. Those are, are high-quality brands. And you should expect to spend somewhere five to $800 for one of those guns. Um, okay. And there are more expensive from there, for sure. Um, but, you know, those are the ones that I would, I would really kind of recommend people look at. Some of the ones that people get sold a lot that I would not recommend, especially for a newer shooter. Uh, people get, get sold Taurus handguns, particularly the Taurus Judge. I hear a lot um, about that. Um, and it is not a good defensive handgun. It is why, why not is a good defensive handgun. Well, uh, first of all, it is very large and very heavy. Um, and so it's very hard to carry. Number two, it is uh, people think they can put the 410 shotgun shells in it and it's very effective and it's not. At anything that is kind of interpersonal distances, it, the, the terminal effect is not great. Uh, it can shoot 45 long colt, but you'd be far better to buy a revolver from a, a more reputable manufacturer like Smith & Wesson and load it with 44 special if, if that's much more effective than 45 colt. Um, okay, well, that's, that's good. good to know because yeah. I do often see that recommended. And, and quite frankly, Taurus has just come to the U.S. and I actually know the owners of Taurus and they're good people. But Taurus's uh, quality control has been abysmal the last several years. They're working hard to fix that, but I still can't recommend them from a, a reliability perspective. So um, 
you know, stay away from them. Pistol shotguns of all kinds, stay away from and, and um, buy up in that quality tier if you can. Something, you know, again, a Glock, a Heckler & Koch, a Smith & Wesson, a Six Sauer, a Beretta, a Walther, a CZ, FN, company like that. Excellent. Well, John, we're running up against our time here. And I do want to thank you very much for this interview. You've provided us with a wealth of information that's extremely valuable. I really value your take on things in society and in self-defense. And will um, of course, recommend that everyone go and check out Active Self-Protection on YouTube and learn a little bit from John. He's got a lot of great advice to offer you. So John, thank you. I hope I can interview again because I honestly could go on much longer in this conversation. So maybe we can do it again sometime. I would love to, Paul. Anytime, you let me know. Wonderful. Thank you. And I wish you a very good afternoon, sir. All right, you as well. Goodbye.